Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us here, or good afternoon if you're joining us at 5 p.m. on Sunday evening, or if you're in the parking lot right now. Really, really, really happy to have you in online, all those places. And it's Palm Sunday, which is interesting because it's Palm Sunday, and we're not going to talk about palms. And next week, on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to talk about the resurrection. And so, one of the things I want you to think about, particularly those of you who have grown up in the church, okay? Uh, so, this isn't all of us, uh, which is fine. All of us are welcome here, regardless of kind of your faith journey, how much you know, how much you don't know. If this is brand new, I promise I'll be working through time. But one thing that typically happens the week before Easter, right? Uh, by the way, that's why we actually celebrate on Sundays as a church and not Saturdays, even though traditionally Sunday's the first day of the week and Saturday's the Sabbath. And when you think about the Ten Commandments, one of them says to keep this, uh, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And you, so you go, wait, wait, is Sunday now the new Sabbath? Nope, it's not the new Sabbath. The reason we celebrate on Sunday, a lot of Protestant uh, churches do so, is because we celebrate the resurrected Jesus. So it moved to a Sunday when Jesus decided to wake up from dead on a Sunday. Got it? So every single week is kind of a resurrection Sunday. We're reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us. And so that's why we worship on Sundays while we'll worship next week and celebrate the resurrection. But if you grew up in church the week before, it was called Palm Sunday. And the reason it's called Palm Sunday is because typically if you're you know, preparing for Easter on Easter Sunday and you kind of back up a week, a week before all the mess of the, of the passion moment happened from Jesus' last supper to his uh, arrest, his betrayal, then his you know, trial, and then his crucifixion. All those things that happened with Friday night kind of culminating in a pretty rough night and Sunday morning culminating in a glorious morning, right? But a week before, Jesus is heading from a little town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, into Jerusalem. And he's showing up and he's riding on a donkey. Lots, lots to understand and uh, learn about there in terms of the Old Testament prophecy that kind of is establishing Jesus as king. But when he shows up, all these people are really, really excited to see him. Really, really excited. And uh, uh, they start kind of preparing the way and paving the way for Jesus to kind of enter into the town. This is kind of like an ad hoc worship service. All of a sudden, all these people kind of get together and they're worshiping Jesus. And they're saying this. They're going, Hosanna, Hosanna. He who comes, comes in the name of the Lord. Right? They're seeing Jesus. And literally that word Hosanna means save us now or save us please like would you save us so they saw jesus as this hope and they were declaring that he was good and kind and god and all these people were worshiping him right all thousands of people all kind of have showed up for this holy week experience are now showing up to celebrate and worship a king who they've declared as jesus and as that's happening some people pull jesus aside and say this isn't good you shouldn't let them do that because there's a lot of people who don't think you should be worshipped. That's both in the religious realm, your Jewish friends, and that's definitely in the Roman Empire. You know, Caesar, Caesar's Lord, not you, and you need, to, you, need to, you need to quiet them down. And Jesus says something so profound. He says, hey, if they stop worshipping me, the rocks will cry out. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by that. We know the nation worships, I mean, the creation worships God. We know all those things. But what we do know is that Jesus is murdered on a cross, put in a tomb, and the whole world turns dark and silent. And in those moments, there's this massive earthquake. And what happens? The rocks, they split open, and they cry out, and Jesus, 
who was dead is now alive again. And such a glorious story that we'll get to talk about next week. But what I, what I want you to think about, as you think about the whole story, have you ever thought about um, why in five days, six days, seven days, all these people waving palm branches, celebrating that Jesus is Lord and Savior and Hero and King and all those stuff, how they transition in such a short period of time from worshipers of Jesus as King and Lord to the very same ones who are now going to yell and cry out, crucify him, murder him. They're going to say something like this, give us Barabbas. That's some other horrible person. Uh, kind of part of the culture was they would, they would uh, kind of pardon one person on this big, holy, weak moment. And they want this evil, terrible person to be pardoned over Jesus. And they watch him get brutally beaten. They pull up their lawn chairs like it's entertainment and see him get beaten and the people around, they're literally uh, gambling for his clothes. Horrific scene. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, how do we get from Jesus is Lord, Jesus is great, Jesus is perfect to murder him, crucify him, we want to see him put in a tomb in just a few days, right? Well, I think there's a lot to think about there, and I think I'm going to help you kind of understand how those things play out today. So what gets us from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday and the, the, the carnage that happens in between? A lot to think about there. and uh, It's actually uh, pretty helpful as we kind of look at what's going on in our own culture. My opinion here, but I think you'll probably agree with it in, in some ways. What happens in culture is there's this, this slow creep to the edge right? Everything's just kind of edge. And by the edge, I mean the edge of the abyss. There's just this slow creep, slow creep, slow creep, slow creep, little by little, day by day, and then there is a massive plunge. Slow creep, massive plunge. Slow creep, massive plunge. It's almost as if uh, so much mess has gotten to the edge right there on the, the mess of the abyss, and all of a sudden it's like the, the ground can't hold it, and then there's just this massive plunge. And I'm not trying to be like a Debbie Downer but what I think we're seeing in so many ways is what typically was a slow creep for so long, what would have happened in culture so long, slow, slow, slow. Um, there is some evidence in sociology that uh, major crises, they, uh, they expedite trends. Uh, an example of this is the trend of our world was it was moving towards digital. just was, right? Ten years from now, the, it would have been digital. What currencies are would be probably digital. What happens in how we communicate a lot more will be digital. And then in a matter of months, crises happen and what was, you know, kind of charting the course for the next couple of decades happened overnight. For example, many of you who hate technology learned how to use it to talk to your grandchildren. Right? You all know how to FaceTime. You know how to do Zoom. You know how to do all those things. In fact, your calendar are filled with so much stuff that you stare in front of a computer for that you thought you would never see in your lifetime, right? This, these crises just kind of expedite trends, right? And so uh, what's happened with uh, the coronavirus has been this slow creep towards the edge, and then it just has felt like this deep fall, what we see in our culture, what we see with political ideologies, slow creep towards the edge. And now at times, in some ways, it feels like we're in a free for all and so that sounds really overwhelming except for this isn't the first time that's happened and while we've been in this long long series uh we are you know 
36, 35, 36 weeks into a series. We've been studying about this guy named Luke. Luke was a doctor turned investigative journalist. And the reason being is this guy, Theophilus, probably a Roman official. He's listed in the scriptures as most excellent Theophilus, which would have been a title to a, for an affluent uh, and influential uh, guy with lots of power, lots of authority within the Roman government. And so Theophilus is wondering uh, what's going on in this culture. He's wondering if it's at a free-for-all, and he's wondering what he should do about it because he's right in the middle of it. And so much of what's happened in his culture and his government has benefited him. But one of the weird things is he's saying Caesar is Lord, and he knows, like we know, that there is no Caesar, there is no earthly human we can worship. And so Theophilus hires a brilliant educator, doctor, researcher to go and study about Jesus. So this guy is hired by this guy to do a kind of a, a research fellowship grant. And we know it's going to take him a couple of years, if not a decade, to go and do all the research. And if you're brand new with us, this is what I, I need you to hear. These are real people. Like we can go back and we can see them in history. We can find it in the Bible and we can find it in historical work to the first, second, and third, and fourth, and fifth century. These are real people. Theophilus was a real guy. Luke was a real doctor who leaves his medical practice and goes and he, he goes and takes all the, uh, reads all the oral traditions that he, or hears all the oral traditions. He goes and reads all the written documents. He goes and sits down with eyewitness accounts and he writes as a thesis. And in his thesis statement about his thesis, he says, I write these things so that you may have certainty about the things you've been taught. And what we've been looking at is that there's actually been a guy, his name Jesus, who, who is the one who's teaching these things, right? And so what is Jesus teaching about? Now, we would say all sorts of stuff that he, you know, like he, uh, if we look at the Old Testament and the book of Isaiah, and then he opens it in Luke chapter 4 and makes his declaration that he came to set the captives free. So we know that part of what he did is came to take away the bondage of our life. So we, we get that. We understand that. But what Jesus taught um, the most about in all the scriptures isn't about sin, isn't about salvation, isn't about how you spend your money. All that's covered in his teaching, but they all kind of fall under a, an umbrella of something much bigger. And what he actually came to talk about, not just talk about, but activate here on earth, which is available to us, is this thing called the kingdom of God, or and in, the, in the scriptures, in the gospels, it's, writ, it's written about 92 different times, sometimes the kingdom of God, and sometimes the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying is, that world that you have been longing for, the one that looks out at how broken our world is, is going, is this the way it's supposed to be? But there's something you know is not right. And Jesus is going, that thing that you know is not right, that thing that you're longing for, the reason that you shed tears when people die or you feel pain, you go, this isn't the way it's supposed to be when you look at the injustice of the world and they make you so angry, right? All those things, all those things, Jesus is going, no, no. What that is, is that's God revealing to you that there is a better way and it's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, repent meaning change the way you think. For the kingdom of God is near. And so Jesus talks about this. Luke captures it. And then he tells us, we've been reading about it for the last couple months, the way that we get access into the kingdom of God is by faith. Faith, this believing and obeying and trusting, even when our senses tell us otherwise. Believing and obeying and trusting, even when we have doubts. And so Jesus is going to tell us to have faith, but not just faith like we all have faith in a chair or in ourselves or in our, you know, our, our checkbooks, or our bank accounts, or our 401ks, that, not that kind of faith, but faith specifically in Jesus. So all of Jesus' teaching is about faith in him, 
There's 1,151 verses in the, the Gospel of Luke, meaning the good news that Jesus, uh, Luke writes about who Jesus is. 568 of those direct quotations of Jesus' teaching. And so as we think about, well, the kingdom of God is real, and the way that we access it by faith, well, how do we do that? So beautiful. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, tells us that faith comes from hearing. So right now, faith is being activated. Even if you don't believe it, even if you don't see it, faith is being activated. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. So we've been looking at the last couple of weeks as the way by which the kingdom of God gets activated is first you hear about it. Here we are. Then you actually think about it. That's literally what the word repent means in the Greek, the metanoia, to have a change of mind. So go in and rethink your positions, rethink your life. And as you rethink those things, what happens is you first hear about it. Then you think about it. And this is so profound and so strange. And then we start to speak about it. And as we speak about it, it starts to bring about it. And so what we've been looking at last several weeks is what does it look like to be prepared to go into the world declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand? How do we speak that? How do we declare that? How do we live that way? And how do we bring about it? So if you're a believer and been in this for a long time, you're going to see real clearly, okay, this is how we get to participate right now in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're not a believer, I cannot think of a better week for you to join us because we're going to take a deep dive and look into our culture. We're actually going to look at what I think's going on in the background, okay? So maybe it'll give you some words that'll help you stop thinking about all the conspiracy theories and start actually getting some certainty, right? You want some certainty, so let's cling to what's true. So that's what we'll do. Definitely, definitely worth your time, okay? But here's what I'd ask, all of us, that you, regardless of your beliefs here, right? Regardless of whether you grew up in the church, this is the first time you've literally ever read or heard the scriptures. I would just, for just 30 minutes here, guys, just ask that you would be open to the idea that these scriptures could be real and that God literally could be speaking to you today through them. Okay? And not go into it with all the stuff you already know about the scriptures, go into it all the things that you want to explain. Like, can we just, for just a few minutes, look at these things and go, God, if hearing comes from your word and our faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from your words of Christ, your words, Jesus. Can we actually see those words today? And would you give us faith? Would you help us to think about it? Help us to speak about it? And help us to participate in bringing about it? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask that you would just, instead of just spectating on, uh, on my prayer time here, uh, that you would actually just talk to God. So if you believe in him, would you say, God, would this be real in my life? Like, would you would you do the work that only your word can do, right? And if you don't believe him, here's all I'd say. I just would challenge you, challenge you. Double dog dare you even, okay? So just for a second, go, God, 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 if you're real, you know, if you're real, would, would you make yourself known today? He's not, he's not offended by that. He's not bothered by that. Look, we're here. You're going to be here for a little while. You're online. You might as well stay with us. You're out in the parking lot. You, you got those windshield wipers going. We might as well make the most of the time so would you have the courage to just ask God to be real in your life? Even if you've got to start with a caveat, if you are real, God. Even if you need to go, I don't think you are, but if you are, that's fine. He can handle all that. He's a big, big God. And so would you join me in praying right this second. Um, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You're welcome in um, every place this microphone is going so whether that's through speakers in the parking lot whether that's in homes or right here in the sanctuary 
Jesus, we just would pray that you'd have your way. And God, um, you told us that when we prayed, that we should ask you to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, that's what we're trying to figure out, your kingdom here today. And so would you please have your way, Lord? Jesus, these are your words, not my words. And I just would, I would just humbly beg you, Lord, to remove anything that's not of you. To, to keep the enemy at bay. To allow this to be a space where your word moves forth into eager and attentive and curious uh, hearts and minds today. Would you please, 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 God, have your way in only the ways that you can. The words of John the Baptist, for me specifically, God, would you decrease me as your voice and your words increase into our ears. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Here's what's going to happen. So what we're going to look at, the reason I think what, what's happening in our world and the kind of the, the slow creep and then the fall fat, you know, the fall out, right? Slow creep, massive plunge, slow creep, massive plunge. The reason I think it's happening is I actually do think there is something kind of in the background orchestrating this, which, by the way, many of you think as well, like, how do all these people have these same things? How is there so much evil, and how does that happen? And what we've done as a society is we've come to the conclusion that it must be our policies that are, the, are wrong, right? Your political leanings, left or right, what everyone is. A lot of us come to the conclusion that if we have better policies, uh, you know, whatever the policies are, you can think about them, whatever, uh, whichever aisle you want to look at it from, your vantage point, that if we have better policies or remove poorer policies, then things would just get fixed. And then we have this assumption that the reason that we have the policies we currently have are because they benefit certain people, right or left, certain people of power or privilege, right or left, right, or, or skin color, whatever that is. And so we have this assumption that so much of the battle that's going on is that there are people fighting for the policies that benefit them, right, and then trying to thwart the policies that won't benefit them. And, and you go, well, that's not me. I wouldn't do that. I want what's best for people. You got all this kind of stuff. And so there's just this suspicion that out there somewhere, there's some kind of orchestration happening, right? That there are people orchestrating coronavirus and mass. Got it? So you there? Our people are orchestrating all these massive movements of, you know, uh, demonstration or protest or violence or mobs or insurrections. You, you choose the word, right? All this stuff's kind of going on, and there is just this assumption out there that there is someone up high. You hear names like George Soros, right, or the Cook Brothers. You know what I'm talking about? These people, these puppeteers kind of masquerading behind the scenes and funding it. And in many ways, all of us believe some of that's kind of happening depending on our, our political leanings, right? But what if that's not happening? What if that's not actually what's happening out there? And I understand you might go, no, no, Josh, I've, I've read about it. I've been on the Reddit pages. Some of that stuff's really happening. Okay, okay, yeah. But what if the majority of this, maybe there are some, you know, places that happen. What if the majority of this isn't being orchestrated by really brilliant people of a political leaning you disagree with? What if there's not someone behind the curtain? What if there's not a couple humans like you hear it now, the system takes care of itself. What if there's not a lot of policies where they're trying to make sure that people don't have any rights? What if there's not a big move of that? Or what if, what if there's not actually this big, deep, dark spread towards communism 
that someone within our, organ, uh, that our you know, political system was kind of trying to orchestrate. What if it's not actually a bunch of humans getting together, you know, and whatever the little faction is, right? You got all these different things. What if Beyonce Knowles isn't actually at work in something making things happen? What if there isn't something like the Da Vinci Code at play with, you know, the Knights of the Templar? What if those things aren't actually what's happening? Well, if they're not, then what's causing all the dismay and all the discord and all the hatred and all the anger and all the evil? Because all that stuff is happening. Agree with me? All that stuff is happening. There are people that shouldn't have guns who walk into places with guns and murder people. There are genocides happening all over our world right now. There is a massive battle of mass going on at our southern border. There are millions of babies being aborted a year. Right? Got a bunch of refugees who are living homeless right now. All that's true, guys, regardless of your political leaning. All that's true. And what if there is not some political right or political left making all that stuff happen? But it is happening. So how do we solve that? How do we go? Well, there's something wrong, and it's got to be your policies that are wrong. I know it's not my policies that are wrong. So if we have more of my policies, less of your policies, then it's fixed. Right? Do you understand how long that conversation's been going on in our country? And it's not fixing things. So let me just pose a question to you. And again, this is why I really want you to be open. What if there's not some political clout and power or system out there or some really rich guy, you know, pulling a bunch of strings? What if, what if the reason there's such a mess in our world right now and the reason that there's always been a mess in the world and there's always been evil and people who leverage their power and their influence for their own pleasure at the stake and of someone else. What if there is actually an evil one that sits above all those things and does puppeteer and does tempt and does shake things up and does bring fear and shame into our lives and does orchestrate things in the hearts and minds of individuals that certainly looks on a much more massive level because there's lots of individuals feeling this hate and this bitterness and this lack of forgiveness that has just kind of corrupted our entire nation, right? What if there is someone who is out and about trying to make sure everyone's canceled and everyone's tormented and everyone feels defeated and everybody sees the other side as the enemy? What if that's actually going on? Could you imagine what kind of discord and division that would cause? So if you're not a believer, I would just offer, this is probably the most reasonable reason to think about our world in light of evil and good. What I want you to hear here is, based on the scriptures, it certainly seems like, by certainly I'm being extra cautious, but I, it confidently in my mind seems like there is an enemy, hear me, that hates you, that hates your world, hates your children, hates your grandchildren, hates our country, hates all countries, hates it all, hates all sorts of unity, hates your family, hates all that stuff, and he came 
and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I believe that to be wholeheartedly true. And so today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus comes face to face with this enemy. Okay? But before we get there, let me just give you a, a lot of kind of, it won't take me long, but a, a lot of backstory of what we're looking at here. And so um, I would challenge you to come back to overtime on Tuesday to listen to a little bit more about this. But uh, from what we can gather, a couple of different passages that we hear a lot about this from is Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. There are some passages that talk clearly about Satan or the Satan or the enemy. And what we can understand in the scriptures, from the very beginning, God ruled and reigned from the beginning of time. And he created humans like you and I with the, the, the agency to either operate by following him fully or to choose our own path, which is always leads to destruction, right? And he created angelic beings who worship him and celebrate him and adore him and serve him also with that same agency. And what it tells us in uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 14, uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, that these angels were led by kind of a sort, like, sort of like a ruling angel, okay? The Satan, the enemy. And there was a war in heaven because this enemy didn't want to follow God, didn't want to have God's uh, back, didn't want to serve him, didn't want to worship him, and basically said that they, he wanted to be seen as God and have the same power as God. And unfortunately, he convinced in some way about a third of the angels to fall in line. And there is a war in heaven, and you can guess real quickly who wins the war in heaven. God does. God does. God with all of his power and might. But guess what happens with that war? That war moves from heaven, and it lands here on a battlefield of earth. Got it? So this war is now moved to earth, and we see it with our, our first ancestors, with Adam and Eve. This enemy shows up, and he starts tempting and sometimes possessing people. And I will catch you up to speed on the next several weeks of what has happened in my own life as, as late as yesterday in the back of an ambulance. Okay, and trying to figure out what in the world could the, the, the enemy be up to with spiritual warfare and attack and hearing about all sorts of people having some pretty rough dreams and going, hey, I'm not trying to scare you any of this stuff, but we should probably pause and go, what if that's what this is? What if that's what's going on around the world is there's an enemy who hates us, wants to devour us. And I understand I want to be cute and want to tell you funny jokes. I want you to feel comfortable in here and understand this it's going to seem like if you're brand new to this, like, oh my goodness, I don't want to go to one of those crackpot places where they talk about this, these demons with, you know, pitchforks. But what we can gather in the scriptures is there is, is an enemy. He hates you. The war has now landed on earth. And Satan will not win. But let me just offer this to you. Have you ever noticed, and you can think about this in terms of like suicide bombers, or someone who is filled with so much pain and sorrow who is locked up with a bunch of people and he's holding them hostage. You know the stories. And the world is so bad and it's so messy and they have no hope. And it's not like they think it's going to get better. They know they're surrounded. Do you know what they do in those moments? Even though they know they're going to lose. When you're in that much defeat and hate and anger and vitriol in your life, you just, you just want, it, want everyone around you to feel the same torment. Right? And so some of the, the scariest stories that you see with negotiators working with, you know, hostage negotiators is trying to even give the ones who are holding the hostages a picture of some kind of hope. Because the minute they lose any kind of hope in it is when devastation and destruction happens to, for everything that's around them. 
right? And so from what we gather in the scriptures, what I can read about towards the very end is that the enemy will be defeated. Christ will rule and reign. And for those of us who are Christians, we will rule and reign with Christ. All that's going to happen. But if he knows he's going to be defeated and there is no hope for him, you can imagine the kind of torment he wants for you and I and our families. Listen to me. He doesn't just have to destroy you, though. He'd be happy just to distract you with your own little nice life as long as that means you stay as far away from Christ and his kingdom as possible. Right? So you go, well, how come there's so many people with so many nice things and it doesn't seem like they have any destruction in life? Well, look, they're, they're walking down a nice little comfortable path for the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years and eventually they will end up in a path where they're fully disconnected from the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and Christ and they'll do that for all eternity. So if that's a path they can walk down, Satan will gladly do that. So lots to think about here, but let me just tell you a couple things real quick. And you can take a picture of this. I'm not going to spend any time here. just want to give you the back story so you understand the front story that we're going to read. Uh, in the scriptures, there's lots of descriptions that describe this evil force, what I would say the puppeteer who's doing the slow, slow, slow creep and now the, the massive, you know, plunge. And the first thing it says is uh, that the enemy is called the evil one. You can take a picture of this. You can come and listen to it later. You can go back. I wanted to put the scripture references so you can go back and read it. That he is evil. There is nothing good in him. So as you look at our world and go, well, why does evil exist? Well, that must mean that God's not very good. No, God is perfect and good. And he gave us the agency to make decisions with ourselves. And fortunately, when I think about the freedom I have with my soul, my only real freedom is to make plans that actually cause me damage in those around me. Right? And so there's an evil one who is inserting these evil plans whispering these things like god never loves you he doesn't know you he doesn't care about you all those things right so there is an evil one next one it tells us he's the enemy also you can see it show up as it called uh, in first peter uh, peter calls him an adversary so this is not your buddy again he hates you he wants you to lose he has every intention of destroying you and your family if he can but he can't. And you'll hear why in just a second. Another one, really, really good. It's called the accuser. So I loved what Megan just said to you all as we were singing that song of going, look, if you've repented, those chains are broken. Like, literally, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 through 11, he spends all this time telling us how we were a slave to our sin. You don't understand. And he calls it all out. And he goes, but if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, right? Like, if you believe these things, right? That Jesus was raised from the dead. If you believe those things, we can get to that in Romans chapter 10, right? If you believe those things, then you are free. You are free. You no longer are held in that bondage. And then Romans chapter 12, it then says this. In view of God's mercy, first 11 chapters, of freeing you out of bondage, then you should offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, for that's your spiritual act of worship right? That our response in all this is actually to worship Jesus, right? Our response is not to go back into that stuff, but your enemy, your accuser wants you to think that, they're, that the God of the universe wants nothing to do with you, or that he's not real, right? Other one is this. I told you a little bit about this. He's Revelation 9, destroyer. He takes everything good and tries to work it out for the bad, which is interesting because God takes all things and works them together for the good, Right? And so this is, this is the inverse operation of what the Lord is trying to do in our lives. His goal is to destroy anything and everything. If there's any hope or joy or peace or love in it or justice in it, he is at work trying to destroy it. Another one, it tells us here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 
He's the tempter. Make sure I can get this on here. He's the tempter. The tempter. Boy, would he like for you to walk out of here and not believe he's good. Boy, would he like for you to walk out of here and go find your peace or your hope in a computer screen or in a bad relationship or a bottle or a pill. It's a tempter, right? Hey, it's never going to get any better, but you can at least have a moment of relaxation, right? He's a tempter. Finally, father of lies. Nothing true ever comes out of his mouth, but he will filter it with half-truths as much as he can. Again, if you look at our world and go, there is something off, there is something broken, and either we have some kind of really fancy cabal and system way up there at the top making all this happen, or there is some kind of force creating havoc and ruin in our world. And I would say what I think we're seeing is a slow creep, and now it seems to be a fast plunge of just a mess. So if that's the case, we've got to figure out what to do with it. And luckily, luckily we do uh, get to figure that out, and we will in the next 15 minutes. But a couple things to think about. C.S. Lewis does, has some really good thoughts here. And he um, explains that there's typically two different uh, o- uh, ways by which people view it. They either view the enemy with like this real zeal, like th- everything's the enemy's fault, right? Oh, my shoe came untied. Satan's after me, you know, those kind of things. And I'm not saying that facetiously, like, Oh, like everything, everything, everything is the enemy's fault. No, no, sometimes you just make bad decisions on your own. Don't let the enemy get credit for that. Own up, take your responsibility, right? So the enemy, uh, uh, everything's the enemy's fault. Everything's about Satan. Everything's about dealing with Satan. And so what has happened in the church particularly is there's been a lot of overcorrection to go, let's just not talk about him at all. Let's pretend he doesn't exist, right? So in one sense, there's just this paralysis because it's such a heavy-weighted thing to think about and spend all this time thinking about it together. You just kind of pretend it's not there. And C.S. Lewis goes, hey, both are, are, are pretty damaging. So two quick thoughts about how the enemy, he's not all-capable, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent. He is not equal to God. They are not like yin and yang. Jesus wins every single time. He is an angelic being who has an army of people, demons who hate you and want to provide pain and sorrow and destruction in your life. That is true. Now, it gets to the next part, because what we're going to read about is actually demon possession today. Got it? Demon possession. And so, can can a demon possess you? Fair question. Again, I'd show back up Tuesday, ask your questions. As far as I can tell, possession is real. Um, But from what I gather in the scriptures, a demon or Satan cannot possess someone who is called Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord of all their life, all of your life, all of your life, which means Satan cannot coexist with God. And therefore, if Jesus has staked out a territory in your life, then Satan has no rights within those territories, right? But the enemy hearing. Uh, the, The truth is this, Satan is real, but we are responsible. He will lie, but you and I are the one who are the ones who believe the lies. He will deceive us, but we are the ones who accept his deception. He will tempt us, but we will sin. So he is real, and we are still responsible for our complicit participation. Got it? He's real, but we're responsible. So how do we deal with this? Lots to think about. And let me offer you this. I think it'll be really, really helpful as we think about this, and t- particularly in our world. And this is the thing that you really got to understand. So our world kind of uh, thinks about two things a lot. We got the mind, 
and we got the body. Now, think about this. Think about how this works. Your mind, what you do, you work on your mind. How do you work on your mind? Mostly principles, better principles, better beliefs in, better beliefs in, better beliefs in, right? You think about it, the more you think about it, the more you believe it, the more you believe it, the more you feel it, the more you feel it, the more you behave that way, right? So there's something about adding principles to their life. Full stop, I'm all for this. I think it's really, really important, right? So uh, the way that we deal with broken minds, hurt minds, sadness, is we give principles and understanding to the mind. Now, what do you do when your body's broken? You fix it. So oh, maybe you fix it with medicine. By the way, maybe we, there's some kind of connection between these two where we fix something going on with our chemical imbalances with medicine, right, in our mind. But our body, there's some kind of chemical structure. There's something broken. And we give our body medicine. We give our body rehabilitation, right? So when we think about people who are broken or feel pain or sorrow, those are the two things they're facing. We get the mind piece, give them principles. The body piece, give them exercises and give them medicine. And so modern world really dealing with these two things in that way now so when you think about it this when you think about the way that the kingdom comes in you hear about it you're hearing about it and then you think about it and you go okay that's with my mind so let me start thinking about this let me imagine these things let me offer the word of christ but in this what we're really missing really really important is there's actually a third component to us and it's our soul got it no one discounts this because your mind and your body don't make you laugh now, we try to deal with some things in our mind as it relates to anxiety, right? Okay, let's uh, help with serotonin levels, right? Some of those things, because we've identified some of that stuff, but that soul, that soul of you that can't sleep at night, that soul of you that wakes up in a dead sweat, the soul of you that you can not escape. And by the way, many people in our world want to escape. That soul is a real real part of us but how do you deal with your soul is it medicine like the body is it just new principles like your mind so how do you deal with the soul really really important and what i would argue is what we do with our soul how we care for our soul how do we protect our soul from the enemy really 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 important and i would say a lot of our damage in our lives a lot of our damages in our marriages and relationships a lot of damages in our world is a result of not damage to the mind and not damage to the body, but damage to the soul. No, I'm not, what I'm not saying is that there, there aren't really people with multiple personality disorder. That there's not medicine that can't help that and that mess up in the mind, you should just ignore and go, that's something with your soul. I'm not saying that. But I will tell you that I think throughout history and even our world now, the torment in our souls and the souls of people that we encounter, that torment, could very well manifest itself in some of the things that look like psychological disorders today, right? So we are trying to solve things with our gender, with our sexuality, with our um, different worldviews, and with our mind, these different disorders, and we're trying to, to, to solve and fix something that's happening here in our soul, and we know it's happening in our soul because nothing we can do to our mind or do to our body is actually giving us relief. Got it? So much pain and so much sorrow, but it's here in the soul, not just in the mind, not just the body. Yes, those are real things, but we have given credit to both and credence to both what's going on in the body and going on with the mind that we've gone, this is specifically a mind issue or this is specifically a body issue, but we have not gone, what if this is a soul issue? Got it? So what we're about to do is about to read this scripture, and I'm going to move through it quick, on Jesus interacting with someone who has 
Manifestations of some really broken body pieces. Manifestations of what seems to be a crazy mind. But what has happened to him is that the enemy has gotten leveraged and clenched to his soul. So, a reminder, last week, Jesus and his buddies, they go across to see a Galilee. They're heading to another place. The storm got, you know, got rough. And they're like, this is supposed to be a three-hour tour, and it wasn't, and it was all sorts of scary. And so they go and wake up Jesus. Jesus speaks. Remember that? Speaks, and what happens? Brings about peace. And so now all of a sudden, they're kind of relaxed, and they're thinking, finally, vacation time. So they're heading across the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to end up in this little area called Decapolis, which means these little ten cities. They're all pagan cities. These guys are pig farmers and pagan worshipers. There's no synagogue. These are not people who are following the Jewish Torah. So they show up here, and they're thinking, I'm not going to know anybody. Finally, I can get some rest. And they are met with absolute destruction from the moment they pull from the shore. So it's so funny because they finally got some peace. And they're going to go through the night. So let me read it to you. Luke chapter 8, beginning of verse 26. Here's what it says. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. You probably got a little footnote there because you got some of it says Gerasa or Gerasa or some of it says Draga and some of it has to do with the landscape and the uh, geology and the geography. To, uh, tune back in on Tuesday if you want to hear a little bit more about that. But they pull into one of these little pagan cities, Decapolis, which is opposite Galilee. Okay, so Galilee, kind of a nation, a state within Israel, Decapolis, another one on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they pull up, got it, in verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, okay? For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Got it? So he is, he is naked, he is in chains, and his mind is in complete torment. And what it tells us is he had been there for a long time. They literally chained him to a graveyard. They have no hope for him. By the way, there's a real possibility this man's a father, a husband, or was, a brother, definitely someone's son. And there is no hope for him. This man was in complete torment. The best thing they know to do with this guy, they don't know what's wrong with him. They just know he's crazy. Multiple personality disorder. Put him in a hospital somewhere. No hospital? Okay, chain him up in the tomb. Got it? And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Right? This is where we get this backwards, because we'll go, see, uh, humans can be really animalistic. That would explain kind of evolution, because you evolve, and some people just don't evolve. And it's like, no, 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 no. What we're actually seeing here is what makes humans distinct from every other kind of situation in the world, that God spoke and said that we are in his image, which means we have this soul. And so what we see here is not just like this reverse evolution but what we see here is a man whose whose soul his being his essence had just been completely consumed and held captive by something and in verse 28 it says this and when he saw jesus he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high god i beg you do not torment me this guy probably hasn't put together a, a, a whole sentence in a while, going all sorts of crazy. Jesus pulls up, and something all of a sudden kind of stands at attention, and something, it says he speaks out. Now, we're going to see in just a second who's speaking, but he speaks, and you see this. He has, so interesting. This, these demons inside him have very perfect Christology. They know exactly who Christ is. See, they call him the most high, son of the most high God, 
right? They understand that he has all the authority. Don't torment us. So hear me, hear me, hear me. This is really, really, really important as Christians. We can't just believe that Jesus is God. We can't just believe it, that, uh, that Jesus is raised from the dead. That's part of that passage in Romans 10. The other part is, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Meaning, it's not just that we know that he's the most high God. It's that we have surrendered our lives to him as Lord of our lives. You want him to have rule and reign over you? The only way isn't just to know him, right? These demons and this uh, demoniac, they know who Jesus is. They know he's the son of the most high God. But he is still being tormented. Why is he being tormented? Because something else has lorded over his soul and then manifested into his body and mind. So this is about lordship, not just about knowing. So believing in God is not enough. Because even the demons here believe in God. So they say, don't torment me. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept up under guard, bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons or the demon into the desert. So this is a man who has a ton of power, right? To be able to break the stuff in complete torment in the desert by himself. Absolutely miserable. So I feel this urgency to kind of get us through the text. I do certainly hope that you look at this guy with compassion. Like the amount of pain and sorrow that must be in his life in these moments. And I do hope as you have compassion here for this torment that you would also have compassion for what torment other people we as a church are known not our church but national church are known for what we're against rather than what we're for and God is for people and as we can see here God is for this demon possessed man so this doesn't this isn't a good time to hop up and use our gotcha statements even as we talk about, you know, gender identity, you can never change your chromosomes. Yep, all that is ac- accurate. But could you have some compassion for the person who has that, who is a, you know, a biological female who looks into the mirror and sees a man? Not say it's correct. Not saying all those things. I'm saying, could you just have some compassion for it? Could you imagine what that torment must be like? for your mind and your body to be at war with each other on what they're telling each other. And I'll tell you, where that collision is actually happening is in the soul. But this is, Andy Stanley says it this way, you, get, you have to decide on so many, uh, uh, so many times when you're in a conversation, do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? A real clever, sarcastic statement or a post, boy, do they make a point, but they're not going to make a difference. So as we look through this with clean, helpful theology of going, yep, yep, we understand this. We understand what God is at work doing. We understand that there's a soul. We understand that there's torment. And can we have some real compassion for that torment in people's lives? And so Jesus looks, and this guy's in the desert, verse 30, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. So this is pretty profound because that word legion that he would have used would have been a Roman soldier term. And that would have been describing a battalion, a group of 6,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know if there's 6,000 demons. He's about to send them in the pigs. We do know, based on Mark, that there were 2,000 pigs. So 
there was something significant going on inside this guy's soul. You got it? You got it? Like, so when we look at our world and you go, is that still the case? Yes, it is still the case. The enemy still hates you. The enemy is still trying to attack souls. It is still there. We've just tried to convince ourselves that it must be something we can fix with a bottle or a pill or a principle. But it is there. And so he looks at him and he, sa he says his name is Legion in verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. You now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. So now we got demoniac. And there's these pigs. Got it? Large herd. And Mark, it tells us there's actually 2,000 here in one of the, you know, the synoptic gospel stories that tells the same story from just a different perspective. Uh, it tells us there's 2,000 pigs. So you got this demoniac who's saying, would you please put us into something? And then there's these pigs. There's a lot going on here. I'm not going to cover it all here. But what we see here, this is, this would have been, uh, pigs were not something that Jesus in, in the Old Testament recommended people, you know, farm or eat. So this is in direct defiance of God's Old Testament word. These are people who live pagan lives, 2,000 uh, pigs in a field. And so Jesus is going to deal with that and watch what happens here. And it says this. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Got it? Do you remember how this started? How these pigs went from this man, or the, uh, how these demons went from this man into these pigs. Scriptures say it this way. He gave them permission. He gave them permission. Permission. See this? Even in this moment, the way that this happens is that Jesus is speaking it into existence. He's speaking. There is something about God's word spoken that changes things. So it gives them permission. Now watch this. Watch what happens next. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. Now where is he now? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed and in his right mind. His body's now covered. He has no more shame. His mind is now well. Right? But it wasn't a fitness routine. It wasn't a 30-day diet. It wasn't a new pill. What was it? It was Jesus speaking death out of this man's soul. Speaking destruction out of this man's soul. So he's in his right mind. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, right? They fled and told it in the city and in the country. So all these different herdsmen, they're going to share all this stuff. And it tells us that he was clothed in his right mind. And so they all go. So how are they going to respond? What do you think they respond to? Verse 36. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been, really important word here, healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes, or Gerasenes, asked him to depart from there from them for they were seized with great fear so he got into the boat and returned so this is really interesting because you go and it makes sense that they'd be angry that he just killed all their all their pigs right but it doesn't say they asked him to leave because they were angry the text would have indicated that if that was their motivation what's their motivation here fear fear 
all of a sudden they come face to face with this reality that they don't want to deal with. And for many of us right now, we're kind of coming face to face with the same reality. It's a lot easier to just think about the mind and the body and celebrate the souls that go to heaven when they die. But the reality that there is an enemy who hates you, wants to destroy you, wants to bring damage to you and your family. Right? And the only solution to dealing with that damage is actually to surrender every single part of you. Right? It's not just knowing God, but surrendering every part of you, that soul of you, yours. To believe with your heart that God, that Jesus rose from the dead and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The way by which we bring ourselves into freedom and peace is actually to allow Jesus to speak deep down into that soul of you, not your mind, not your body, right? And so this is what gets so important. When I tell you to hear about it, then think about it. What I think we've been doing is we've been thinking about this with our mind and not thinking about this with our soul. How do we allow this to go? If this is true, God, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean in the way that I view things or participate in things or go around things? And what places do I need to surrender those parts of me back to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Because there's an enemy. While he can't destroy me, right? And he can't, he can't live in me and rule and reign in me. He certainly does want to offer you accusations and tempt you and lead you down a path that will cause you pain and sorrow. So how do we deal with that? Now, next glance, you go, oh, that means you just got to go sit with Jesus, right? What does this guy do? How does he stay away from that old life? This is so interesting. I want you to think about this. What do, what do you do? What do you do if you just found out this and got relief from all that stuff? What do you do? Now watch this, verse 38, so important. The man from whom the demons had gone begged, begged that he might be with him. So the man now has clothes on. He's in his right mind. Jesus has been asked to get in the boat. He's obliging. He respects boundaries. And he gets in the boat, and the man goes to get in the boat with him. Which you'd imagine if this just transformed your life, this makes perfect sense as that's where you go. Right? I don't want those demons back in me. I don't want them that kind of stuff. Jesus, let me be with you. I haven't taken discipleship one-on-one and discipleship 202. I haven't taken the new church members class. Can I get through on all those things? I haven't done any Bible studies with the, you know, the leaders yet. Take me with you, right? And so, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Declare how God, you see this? He literally frees this man, frees him from all bondage. You would think he'd keep him in a tight leash, go, no, stay with me, we're not going to have you do that again. No, 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 stay away from that stuff. None of that happens. He sends him back to his old hometown, to his old friends, to those he had influence with. And what does he tell him to do? Let me read it to you again. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. You see how we defeat the enemy? It's not by, you know, holding up in some huddle and fasting all the time and fighting off. You see how we defeat the enemy? You see what, this, what God, Jesus tells this man to do right after this? He doesn't tell him to go do any spiritual practices. He actually tells him to get to work. See this? He heard about it. He literally had Jesus speak into him. Speak the darkness out of him. And he got to think about it. He got in his right mind, is what the scriptures tell us. He put on clothes. And he goes, and he goes, Jesus, can I go with you? And what does Jesus tell him to do? Go speak about it. 
You see, so much of the way by which we fight the enemy in our world is we speak about the goodness of who Jesus is. The way that we deal with evil in our world is we invite Jesus into every part of every conversation. That means every drive down the road. That means before you walk into the grocery store or the convenience store, you go, Jesus, would you be Lord of this? Right? And we look for opportunities to actually speak about what Jesus has done in our lives. The way that we fight off the enemy isn't we hide and we cower. It's no, we stand up taller and stronger and we believe with more conviction and we speak more boldly. No, 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 you don't need to get in the boat with me because you've just been saved and freed from bondage and now you are released to go do the work. You see it. He heard about it. He thought about it and he spoke about it. And this is so crazy, so crazy, so crazy, so crazy. You read it in John and Mark. Jesus is going to be gone from Decapolis for a couple months. This is his last time there. He gets sent away. They didn't want him there. They wanted nothing to do with him. You got it? This isn't like the crowds in Galilee following him. This is a new region, Decapolis. They are pagans. They want nothing to do with God. That Satan had rule and reign over their region, right? So Jesus is going to show back up there in what looks like six weeks, at the most three months. And he shows back up in the same area. And guess what happens the next time he shows up? He feeds the multitudes. He feeds the multitudes. At least 4,000 men, their wives, kids. 10,000 people show up. Why do you think that is? These 10,000 pagans where Satan was ruling and reigning and obviously had access, his demons were, were creating oppression in the middle of the broken area. Why do they show up? Because the man shared a story. This one man goes into this place like a Trojan horse and he goes, this is who I was and this is who I am now. So the way by which the kingdom plays out is you've got to hear it. You've heard it. You've got to think about it. Not just with your mind, but allow it to go all the way down in your soul and move throughout your body and mind. And then, then, then you speak about it. And I promise you, according to Solomon in the Old Testament, that there's power of life and death in the tongue. And so you, when you speak the name of Jesus, when you speak his goodness, when you speak those things, the enemy flees. In fact, it tells us in Revelation chapter 12 where we know who wins the story. It says the enemy is defeated by the blood of the Lamb, meaning what Jesus does for us. And hear me, hear me. The word of people's testimony, their stories, that when you speak it, the enemy is defeated. And they did not even shrink from fear of death, is what it says in Revelation 12. They were so confident in Jesus' lordship. So, we're going to get the opportunity to keep doing that. And so we're going to help you speak that today in your own lives and in your own world. And so the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song together. And the song we're going to sing is called a See a Victory. See a Victory. We're going to see a victory for the battle belongs to the Lord. So here's the really neat thing. Your job is not to fight the enemy. Jesus has that. Your job is to proclaim the goodness of who God is to anyone and everyone who's willing to listen. Why? Because that's where the victory is. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so I just want to challenge you to think about this. And not think about it as, okay, if I sing this song, my finances are fixed, my cancer is gone. As in, no, this is so much better that, the, the, that God is going to have a victory in my soul like the demoniac. And here's the most beautiful part of the whole story. All these people are watching and they all had the exact same issue. Every single one of those guys in Jerasa had the same issue. This guy's the only one that was blatantly obvious because every single one of them had tormented souls. The way that that stuff manifested was a lot more quiet and inside than it was outside. And so today, would you invite Jesus into every part of your soul? Would you declare him Lord of it all and declare that you're going to see a victory? Speak it out loud because that battle 
belongs to the Lord. Would you guys lead us as we sing? Thanks, Megan.
today not knowing that you stand in victory. Like we've not done our job if you walk out of here and you don't feel like you're walking in victory. And so I want you to leave today and I want you to come back next week as we celebrate Christ's resurrection for our hope and our joy and our truth in this world. And I pray that that would be with you. We ask, uh, we would invite you to enjoy it. Uh, join us. I'm sorry, I'm so amped up. We would ask you to join us for Good Friday service. It's going to be out in the parking lot. It'll be a drive-in. You can join us at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. We're going to reflect and remember and take communion together. And then Sunday morning, we'll be inside at 9 o'clock, streaming outside. If you're watching online at 1045, that'll be at 11 o'clock next week that we'll show that. And we'll be live outside um, in the showmobile doing a service at 11 a.m. So walk in victory today and have a great week. We'll see you next week. I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory